Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Thursday. We're glad you're here on the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We've got really bad news with a pretty good aftertaste, but uh, yet to be seen is probably the best way to describe the aftertaste. Uh, we also have two distinctly crazy martinis, one which might be necessary and one which is just flat out disgusting. So if that doesn't whet your appetite at lunchtime, I don't know what else does. Uh, Jim, let's get right to our horrible martini because this is not a repeat. This is not week old news. It's just the same number, unfortunately. 6.6 million jobs lost in the last week. Same as last week, which followed 3.3 million jobs lost two weeks ago for roughly 16 million jobs or a little more than 10% of the workforce. And Jim, we've got three more Thursdays left before the end of this month. It's going to be real ugly when we get to decision time on what to do after April. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that jumps out here is we are used to having recessions and, and we had the Great Recession that were very bad but they also moved at a pace that seems glacial compared to the number of layoffs and shutdown businesses and the economic consequences of the coronavirus shutdown. Now, uh, it, we always felt fine that you could measure unemployment's growth from month to month. Uh, and obviously, the next two months, you would generally see some subsequent revisions of that. And generally, you didn't see any dramatic revisions. Generally, that first number was pretty close to the ballpark. Um, but now I think it's pretty clear that we, we are in uncharted territory here where it changes dramatically week to week. I have no idea what's going to happen on that first Friday in May, but it's going to be a horrible number. <laughs> it's going to be um, a, a number probably worse than the de uh, height of the Great Recession, which is around 10% and change. I think a lot of people throw around the number 14% is probably where we are right now. And between now and the end of the month, we could be considerably higher. Um, so I, it, it's one of those things where it's, we're seeing amongst policymakers, amongst health policy officials, this ongoing debate about, okay, how long do we have to keep the whole country on quarantine? Um, I mentioned a number in the morning jolt today, just to give you sheer perspective of it. Roughly 80 some percent of the, uh, counties in the United States are currently in some form of lockdown or shutdown or shelter in place or self quarantining or rules like that. Obviously, and of those counties, they make up roughly 96% of the economic output of the United States. Um, yeah, there are probably some that are, if you're living in one of those counties that doesn't have those restrictions, terrific. I hope you're uh, enjoying it and doing well. But, you know, the places where we do most of our economic output are currently under this. That is the scale of this. And obviously, we can't function as a country with 96% of our economic production shut down. So the question is, okay, how much longer can we withstand this? I think numbers like this are pushing in the direction of, okay, we're going to have to accept a certain amount of risk of, of you know, further infections and, and maybe not bend the curve as steeply downward as we would like to, simply because we have to get the economy going again. You and I had talked earlier about, about various doctors saying, oh, you got to go two years. Like, look, I, I think you got till the end of May, and then I think people's patience will run out. And I think numbers like this add to the argument of our ability to fight this virus in part depends upon having the financial resources to devote to it. Shutting down our economy, like we, we voluntarily put our economy into a coma. And at some point you got to wake the patient up out of the coma. Otherwise you, the, the patient does not recover.
Jim, I don't know if it's fair to assume that the job losses for the rest of the month are going to continue at this pace at 6.6 million a week. You have to assume probably that most of these are from restaurants and leisure and resorts and that sorts of thing. Uh, and, and maybe it'll taper off over the next few weeks, but the numbers are still going to be really ugly. Uh, you said towards the end of May is going to be a decision time, perhaps. I, I think even before that, depending on on the condition in certain areas, uh, right at the end of April, there's going to be a huge debate and there's going to be a lot of pressure. I think you're going to possibly see some severe disagreements between the likes of the president and his medical experts who, uh, to this point, have largely stayed on the same page, at least publicly. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to stay the same if these numbers keep continuing for the next three weeks. When I say May, I mean early May, not late okay. May. Okay, gotcha. May Day. Gotcha. <laughs> we people will be saying May Day on May Day. Well, then all the socialists who usually party on May Day, we'll see how horrible they, it actually works when you shut mm -hmm. down a capitalist society. So maybe that'll be a silver lining here. But the actual silver lining that we have today on this is uh, from the Fed. I know you're chewing really hard that the good news is from the Fed, but uh, they actually jumped in today, which was kind of nice, uh, given that the markets uh, would have probably tanked on today's jobs news. But they're actually up a couple of percent because the Fed announced today a bevy of new moves according to NBC, aimed at getting another $2.3 trillion of financing into businesses and revenue-pinched governments. Uh, also, Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell saying that he believes once we actually are through the coronavirus crisis, and then that's the big caveat here, he says the bounce back can be robust when it does come. So uh, obviously, when that is, is critical. But the idea that we can still maybe not have a V-shaped recession here, Jim, but uh, at least have a pretty short bottom on the U-shaped recession uh, is encouraging. Let's just hope it's sooner rather than later. Yeah. You know, if that U-shape gets, you know, curved up, we want to bend that cur a different curve in an upward <laughs> direction on, on that one. I, look, from the beginning of this, one of the things that is really, really weird about this sudden economic downturn is that, one, we were, you know, in, in really good shape heading into it. Um, we have not had a housing bubble burst. We have not had uh, banks making wild, reckless loans that have crashed and, and then have taken them down with it. Um, we have not had an oil shock. You know, all the traditional reasons where you look at and say, oh, why did the United States have an economic downturn or a recession? They're not in play here. What is in play here is that people are you know, gen reasonably concerned about catching coronavirus. This is a virus we don't have any natural immunity to. And social activity that, that, you know, that involves work is going to necessarily expose people to this. Um, and, you know, I think my understanding is that there are a couple of meatpacking plants where they've had to shut things down because workers have gotten sick and you don't want sick workers handling meat. Uh, maybe I'm foreshadowing one of our future <laughs> uh, martinis in th today. Um, you know, we're, on the one hand, when we say, look, we've got to reopen the economy. I think everyone agrees with the general sentiment. The question is, how do you do it? What's the timing right? How much can you do social distancing in a workplace? Uh, can you space people out on an assembly line? Or is it simply because of the way the, the assembly line is constructed, people need to be within six, you know, six feet of each other? Will masks work? Um, all kinds of other factors that get into this idea of how do you uh, do that? And then the next question will be, once we lift these things, how many people who at the beginning of this crisis had disposable income that they could have spent on a restaurant or traveling someplace, going to Disney World, going staying in a hotel, taking a flight somewhere, going on a cruise, all of these industries that have just been slammed and effectively shut down. Um, will there be people who have that discretionary income to spend on these things? And that's an open question. Um, I do kind of wonder at some point, and, and the other thing is like, as much as we want people to go out and spend money, 
when people go through a you know a traumatic one of the things that you know made the great recession so difficult was that it came, when it came on hit really hard 2008 and early 2009 people were understandably reluctant to spend money even if they had it because they didn't know what the future was going to hold they didn't know if their jobs were secure they didn't know if their uh, their business they worked at was still going to be there six months from now or a year from now and so people spent less money that's a vicious cycle that work that worsens things so if we can get people to increase their uh, uh, spending it'll be terrific but unfortunately it's going to be a uh, uh, you know, it all depends on how much people can spend and how much they feel comfortable spending after having this giant, completely unforeseeable economic curveball thrown their way. Not getting a lot of help from Congress. Uh, the Senate today not getting it done on a Republican proposal to add $250 billion to the small business coronavirus relief. There was $350 billion in the bill that passed uh, several days ago. They're quickly finding out that's not going to be enough. Uh, and so Mitch McConnell wanted another quarter of a trillion. The Democrats wanted more than that. And since there's only a couple of people on the floor, there was no unanimous consent. So they're off till Monday. So good luck, everyone. Let's go to our first crazy martini now here, Jim, and let's uh, talk about Dr. Fauci. Uh, Dr. Fauci, of course, has become a ubiquitous figure uh, in media and at the briefings and everything. Uh, and he was asked an interesting question uh, by the Wall Street Journal podcast. What's going to change forever? Not just for a few weeks or a few months here, but what's going to change forever because of this? And here's what he said. And just as a society... Just forget about shaking hands. We don't need to shake hands. We gotta break, we've gotta break that custom. Because as a matter of fact, that is really one of the major ways that you can transmit a respiratory borne illness. So Jim, I think it's gonna be really awkward given the instincts that we've built up in ourselves over years and years and years, not to shake hands with people. That's always generally considered rude, but uh, I, I think at least during cold and flu season, and if we know there's an outbreak, I think people are gonna be better about it, but that's gonna take some getting used to. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing, you know, have we seen the end of the era of the handshake? Um, one of the things that early on, both I noticed and lots of other people on social media were observing that, you know, after, at first people like, you know, uh, it was so out of character to not shake people's hands. Um, right before, uh, you know, the, the rules really got stringent. Uh, we were hearing about this stuff, but people weren't really, you know, sure how seriously to take it. Uh, I went to a wedding. And everyone, I was, I, I was already at the elbow bumping stage of things. <laughs> a couple of people wanted to shake hands and I was like, hey, how about we elbow bump? And they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, really. <laughs> you know? By the way, everyone's turned out fine. No cases at the wedding. Everybody seemed to be okay. Um, but it's one of those things where people started noticing like when they started seeing people touching each other, whether it's handshakes, hugs, all these other things, or not social distancing while watching TV shows and movies, <laughs> like it felt weird. It's like, well, no, don't do that. <laughs> Step one, no, no, you don't want to touch them like that, you know. Um, so one, I think it's an interesting question of how quickly we adopted this idea of recognizing shaking a hand could end up being something that inadvertently spreads germs and, and could uh, have serious health consequences for this. I, you know, it, it, it's always been an argument that um, all in all handshakes were uh, not necessarily hygienic. Um, this is, you know, maybe we'll all adopt Japanese bowing. <laughs> maybe we'll we'll all do some sort of yoga like namasta and you know put our hands together and, and bow or make some sort of gesture or something like that i think you're right i think it will be a while before people feel comfortable physically touching each other in ways that are you know obviously not sexual obviously you know but respectfully affectionate um early on i saw a joke that was you know 
it, it did define the time where, you know, in 2018, 2019, when a boss had a hand on a young on a female employee's shoulder, it's like, oh my God, that's sexual harassment. Stop that. It's me too. Now it's like, get your grubby hands off of me. I don't know if you have coronavirus. <laughs> So, Jim, you mentioned uh, the bowing in Asian cultures and uh, perhaps uh, the namaste uh, yoga look. I feel like those for America are, are a little too formal. So what would be more appropriate for America? Do you do like the finger guns like Isaac the bartender on Love Boat? Do you go <laughs> the casual wave? Uh, do you, I mean, fist bump, but that's, that's, still, uh, that's still running a little bit of a risk there. So what would be a, a, a good American alternative to the handshake that... Uh, doesn't necessarily copy another culture and is kind of more representative of how we roll. You know, Greg, I'm suddenly realizing, you realize touchdown celebrations will never be the same. <laughs> or at least won't be for a while. High five? No, like, everybody's going to leave you hanging. <laughs> you know, anybody? No, no. You know what? There's going to be some sort of like mimed uh, gesture. There's going to be some sort of like, you know, symbolic ge- gesture that mimics it. Um, but you know, maybe it'll be more, actually, you know, it, it will be mom. It'll be some sort of like general action. You know, how, like sometimes they do the, uh, things where somebody jumps up and down and, and everyone else acts like they're, they're being bounced or something like that. People will figure out all kinds of different gestures, uh, that do not involve physical touching. They'll communicate the affection. They will communicate the camaraderie, all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, the end of handshakes and probably the end of high fives and such are, uh, uh, you know, disappearing as well. Yeah, when I first started uh, dating my wife and uh, we got together with a group of friends, it, you know, it took forever to like uh, give everybody a handshake and so forth. So you just kind of walk in the room and give an air high five and then everybody air high fives back. Uh, I realized that if people aren't familiar with it, it could look like you're a bunch of Nazis. So that's a little bit risky. Ah, but uh, it, it, in general, you know, if you want to stay, uh, stay uh, germ free, uh, that's, that's one way to do it. But I think everybody's going to have their own little tweak on this. So it could be fun to watch. And uh, given the way social media responds, I'm guessing some of these ideas are going to come along pretty fast. All right, let's move on to our second crazy martini. And I warned you at the start, folks, uh, it is lunchtime. If you're eating right now, you might want to stop eating or hit pause, but do come back to it later. Uh, but let's talk about one of the reasons that things don't go well with China when it comes to viruses and other things. We've talked about the bats, we've talked about the labs, but now there's this. Uh, Jim, this is in your morning jolt today, and this is from the Washington Post. China's food safety problems have no better symbol than the illegal and utterly disgusting problem of gutter oil. Cooking oil is used heavily in Chinese food, so some street vendors and hole-in-the-wall restaurants buy cheap black market oil that's been recycled from garbage. You read that correctly. Enterprising men and women will go through dumpsters, trash bins, gutters, and even sewers, scooping out liquid or solid refuse that contains used oil or animal parts. Then they process that into cooking oil, which they sell at below market rates to food vendors who use it to cook food that can make you extremely sick. No kidding. Jim, um, I don't know exactly when I'm going to eat lunch today, but it's certainly not going to be soon. You know, I, I just would observe, you know, look, people know that I, I traditionally write about politics and campaigns and elections <laughs> and that since this began, I don't think of myself as a health reporter. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV, but this has been the biggest and most interesting story in the world, the most consequential story in the world. And so each morning I'm getting up and trying to learn more about the possible chain that led this virus to end up in humanity, a trail that leads back to China. And, you know, a couple of times I have laid out the evidence that points to uh, either the Wuhan Institute of Virology or the Wuhan Center for Disease Control, both of which were doing research on coronaviruses in bats. 
uh, but I am quick to emphasize the evidence is coincidental. There is no smoking gun. There is no clear memo saying, oh, oopsie, the bat bit you, and, and then, you know, uh, you know, Louis went to the market that day or something like that. You know, we don't have anything quite like that. Somebody sent forward to this to me, uh, a reader named David. Thank you, David. Um, I had eaten before I'd read it, and then I wish I had not. <laughs> and this was, you know, this has been covered several times throughout the years. This is not something that just started in China. Um, although if you're wondering, yes, it was continuing their articles. You could still find about it in December 2019. And so, yeah, cooking oil is at a premium in China. Everybody are always looking for a way to uh, figure out a way to get it cheaper. And so basically they are looking for globs of fat in the sewers, in um, any conceivable place where you're going to find built up globs of, you know, every, every, all the grease that you end up that ends up clogging your, your sinks and drains and, and all that stuff. They're like, hey, we can reuse that. Now you might be like, to begin with. One, you know, David had said, how do we know where the sewer lines from these two labs go? And how do we know that all of the stuff that they're dealing with with these coronaviruses and bats is being properly disposed of? Could this be a possible vector to get uh, the, the virus into human beings? And on the one hand, yes, it could. On the other hand, this just kind of indicates, well, if this kind of stuff is going on, the possibility of this getting through some sort of consumed pangolin at the wet market uh, is a, you know, that, that's another strong possibility. I think my biggest thought though, Greg, when I saw this was, dear God, how do the Chinese not have mass debilitating food poisoning on a regular basis? And if right. you're saying like, okay, this must just be one or two places. Look, for what it's worth, there was one study by one Chinese food safety scientist who calculated, he believed one out of every 10 meals in China was using what they called this gutter oil. I would say let that sink in, but I don't think I'd even want to use that metaphor. Um, <laughs> just use, yeah. so let, let's assume he's wildly overstating it and it's not one in 10. It's one in 20. It's one. In, it's still way more people who are get you having their food cooked in oil that has been in some sort of extraordinarily unsanitary situation. Does this tell us where the, the uh, coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2 is from? Uh, no, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. I think it does indicate this. And I think it has further indication. If this really did come from a wet market, and that is the line from the Chinese government, and it is worth noting that virologists have been saying since long before this, hey, this is exactly the kind of circumstance where a virus could jump from one species to another. Um, but they're still open. The Huanan seafood market in Wuhan is still is closed, but the other wet markets in China are open. And so this entire process, if this is indeed how it jumped to a human, this could be happening with some other virus today, tomorrow, or at any point in the future. Um, something that I think is, you know, just in case you were feeling too reassured going, you know, heading, <laughs> like you're really disgusted and then I left you really frightened. So, um, boy, happy Easter weekend, everybody. It's absolutely disgusting to listen to all of that, but I have to say it makes me feel better about invoking the five second rule compared to what's going on in China. <laughs> I think the five second rule, depending on what actually got dropped, of course, is reasonable. Although perhaps that will be one of the things that also, also goes depends away. on where you, where you dropped it, right? You know, yes. kitchen floor, did you clean it recently? Okay, maybe you're very, you know. Yes, exactly. Hey, you know who's going to love the new uh, non-handshake policies? Uh, in addition to Howie Mandel, of course, wasn't uh, President Trump uh, reported to be a, a germaphobe freak and didn't like to shake hands? Obviously, he doesn't he, now, but uh, yeah, back in the day, he hated that, right? 
early on, one of the, I, I had said this semi tongue in cheek, but not entirely. One of the reasons I had doubted that Trump would ever actually run for president instead of flirting with the idea every four years as it seemed to do is that, you know, running for president, you have to shake hands. You have to physically interact with people. And Trump did not like that. Uh, but obviously he overcame it. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe he was right the first time. And maybe all of us should have uh, avoided those handshakes. Maybe we all just waved. You know what? Vulcans. Vulc- <laughs> if you could you do it with your hand, that's the thing, you know. Just go up to everybody, live long and prosper. I mean, everybody feels everybody feels good. And I, I find that line of thinking, Greg, logical. Trump at some briefing in the next two weeks. I told you, I was right about this years ago. There you no, go. <laughs> no handshaking. This could have all been avoided. I was right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jim, uh, there is a three martini lunch podcast tomorrow. However, you have the day off. So have a blessed Easter with your family. And uh, we will see you again on Monday. Yes. Uh, look, it's not like I'm going anywhere, but yes, uh, <laughs> everyone over there hopefully has a happy Easter weekend. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. And also remember that you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.